Peter chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 today. Uh, we'll finish up 1 Peter uh, in the third week of August. And so uh, be prepared for that as we will start a new series uh, shortly after that. I want to let you know that uh, on the 23rd of August, we're going to have baptisms available for you. So if you have not yet made a public profession of faith uh, through baptism, we call you to do that. And we're going to talk about that in the passage today. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 17, though I'm going to spend the majority of our time teaching through 18 to 20. Um, and last week, before I read this, you, you might remember, we're called to, to bless those who curse us, do good to those who do evil to us, and then set apart Christ as holy in our hearts. And you might remember the story I told last week about how I needed in the moment to say, Jesus, help me, give me your love, give me your words, give me your motivation to care for somebody who wasn't treating me real well. Peter says in order to be able to love those who don't do good to us, we're going to need to set apart Christ in our hearts as holy, meaning we, we take a moment to say he's above everyone else, he's more influential than everyone else, and in the moment he needs to be the one that directs us more than anything else. And so that's part of what we talked about last week, and that would lead us to be able to have an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that's in us. In other words, we should live our lives in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation, that we couldn't explain what we do apart from the truths of Jesus Christ. Now this week, as we go into the text, we're going to see that Peter is calling them to press into what they can have in Jesus in order to keep speaking the truths about Jesus, even if people don't receive it or accept it. So let's read together, starting in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, before we go any further, I want to make it clear that in this world, Jesus said we will suffer. Uh, that you, we all know this is a broken world. Uh, whether you know the truths of God found in Jesus Christ, whether you know the Word of God found in the Bible, whether you know any of that or even believe any of it, you would have to admit this is not a perfect world. It's a broken world. And we're going to experience suffering in this world. And what Peter is saying is we're all going to experience suffer, suffering. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And what he also wants to do is he wants to turn it a bit here in this next phrase to help us understand that Jesus suffered for doing good to keep us from suffering from our evil. Okay, He's going to turn it a little bit and show us that what Jesus did saves us from the ultimate suffering. Let's keep reading. For Christ also suffered once for sins. And that word once means that, once. And it means once for all sin. Meaning Jesus died once for every sin that you or I have ever committed or ever will commit. Those whose faith is in Jesus have Jesus who suffered for their sin on the cross to, to bring them to God. That's what he goes on to say. Suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. And I want to stop and just pause here for a minute and acknowledge that what Peter is saying, he's saying everybody's going to suffer in this world. Some are going to suffer because of evil. Some are going to suffer because they've done good. But what we see in Jesus is Jesus never did anything evil, never sinned, but he suffered for sin. 
And he wants to make sure we understand that there is going to be a day when we will stand before a holy God. He's going to talk about this later in 1 Peter 4, which we'll come to in a few weeks. But that there is judgment coming where we will have to give an account for everything we've done. And the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death, which is not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal separation from God, the giver and sustainer of life, for our rebellion against the giver and sustainer of life. That there will be judgment coming, and Peter wants to let us know and let the, the readers know in that day that there is a suffering coming for those who choose to stand on their own merits because they will have to give an account for the evil and rebellious ways they've lived to a holy God. And Jesus, who is the only one who's righteous, who's only one who's ever always done what is good, right, and perfect, suffered for evil. Now, I know many of you, this will be a message you've heard many, many times. Peter, this is the third time in Peter's letter where he's going to just maximize the message of the gospel. That's where we're going to go today. And I don't want you to miss this because there's some of you in the room who maybe have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to I warn you, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day for you to not look forward to an impending doom where you'll stand before the creator of the universe guilty because of the sins you've committed. Instead, Christ the righteous one, the one who's only ever done perfect, stands in your place and at the cross he who knew no sin became sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. You who should suffer for doing evil will not because Jesus suffered for doing good so that he might pay for our evil. I want, you to, I want you to hear that. I want to call you to believe that and put your trust in Jesus today. Peter wants to make sure, yeah, we will all suffer, but it's far better to suffer for doing good. And there's only one who perfectly always did good. And the beauty of us putting our faith in Jesus is that all of the good that Jesus did on the earth becomes ours when our faith is put in Christ. You, you get to be defined no longer by your unrighteousness, but defined by Jesus's perfect obedience. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's incredible news. I hope even today you're just like, yes, this last week, full of unrighteousness. Right? I mean, if you're honest, like, I, mean, I was even coming today. I hardly slept last night. I don't know why. Just tossing and turning. I don't know if it's because of the message. I don't know if it's because of some stuff I'm struggling with in life. I don't know what it is. But, but I woke up this morning and said, I need the righteousness of Christ to be my defining statement of my life. I don't want my last week of not loving well, not listening well, not being patient well, not walking in a way God wanted me to walk every moment of every day. I mean, if, if you were to just take a, a litany of last week in your life and just make a list of all the things you've done, if you let that define you, you won't come into a place where you say, I am, I am free, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed. But in Christ Jesus, you can come in and say, the righteousness of Christ is what defines me more than anything else. That should lead you to great rest. In fact, what I want to talk about today is what are you hiding in? What are you putting your life into? What is it that will save you through the flood 
of your own sin, through the flood of others' rejection, through the flood of a spiritual battle that's going on all around us every day. The reality that Peter wants us to understand is not only are we forgiven by faith in Jesus and made righteous in Jesus and have been brought to God to have communion with the living God through Jesus, but he also wants us to understand that the very resource that enabled Jesus to do what he did is our resource, and that's the Spirit of God. Let's keep reading. He goes into verse 19 with the last part of 18. I want to back up and read 18 once again just to make sure we don't miss it because what I want you to understand is that you and I have something in our life that takes the suffering, takes the pain, takes the difficulty of life and turns it into something that can bring glory to God, turns it into something that can magnify the power of God in us and that's the Spirit of God at work through us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I just want to stop there and make sure you understand that you and I were brought to God through Jesus Christ. You did not have to make yourself right to get to God. You didn't have to work yourself up some spiritual mountain that you had to climb to get to God. You didn't bring you to God. Jesus brought you through his death on the cross and his resurrection to God. So maybe, maybe even today you're wondering, do I need to do more? Do I need to perform more? Do I need to attend more? Do I need to read the Bible more? Do I need to pray more? What more do I need to do that I might have a better relationship with God? And the answer is nothing. He brings you to God, not you. Jesus is the one who brings you into a relationship with God, being put to death in the flesh, which is referring to the cross, that he died in body, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, I'm just going to pause here and tell you this passage that I just read is the hardest passage to understand in the entire Bible. Okay? In fact, Luther said this, Martin Luther kind of the father of the Reformation, said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. That's Luther. So here I go. Yeah, and you might go, what's so difficult? Well, who did he preach to? Who are these spirits in prison that he preached to? And there's Erickson, who's a, a guy who writes commentaries on how to study this passage, says there's 180 different combinations you could come up with on how to translate this passage. So, like, here we go. I'm not going to give you all 180. I'm just going to reference a couple that I think it, it could very likely be. One, uh, some believe, uh, and, and I, this is where I'm at, and I'm going to talk about this, that he went to those through Noah who were rejecting the message of the preacher of righteousness and repentance, Noah, in the days of Noah, that he went to them through his spirit and, the, uh, and spoke to them through the person of Noah and, and, and how he preached. That's, some believe that. and that, That's a pretty long-standing tradition in the Christian faith. That's where I'm at. Uh, some believe he, went, he descended into hell and spoke to those who are presently in prison in hell. I don't believe that for a lot of reasons, and I'm not going to get into that. But um, there, there's no dissent language at all in this text. 
so I'm not going to go there, but um, most don't believe that anymore um, in terms of that would be not the general consensus anymore. Some believe he was speaking to uh, fallen angels after his resurrection, uh, preaching to them saying, hey, guess what? I triumphed over you, and now you're under my authority. And I, I lean toward that as well, just so you know. The good news is, whichever we land on this morning, it's not going to change the truth of the gospel. It's not going to change the truth of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, all the fundamentals. Uh, but I want to let you know, like, I, I'm still struggling with this, and I think we will until we meet Jesus one day, because unfortunately we weren't there when Peter was in the context. But what we should say is, how do we deal with a text that's hard to understand? And so some of what I want to do this morning is give you just a little bit of training on how you study the Bible while we study it, okay? So first of all, how do you do this? Do it humbly. Like what I'm saying to you, instead of me going like, I know the answer. Definitively, Jeff has the corner on the market to this text, which is called pride. Okay, and so I don't. I'm just going to tell you that. I'm going to give you what I think in light of my study, in light of what I believe this points to. So how do we do this? First of all, humbly. Second, we always ask the question, what is the author saying in light of the situation that he's communicating to, the context in which he's speaking to, in other words, Asia Minor in that particular day, and what is he saying in light of what he's already said? So we want to look back a little bit in the text. We're going to do that in a minute. And then what is he saying in light of the overall narrative of the Bible? Because it should agree or continue to affirm what it all says. So that's, that's what I'm going to do with you this morning. First of all, situation, we want to remember that what Peter's been doing is he's speaking to a group of people who are suffering for the sake of Jesus in Asia Minor. Many of them are feeling rejected, isolated, or even ostracized. Some are being accused of wrongdoing because of the way their newfound faith in Jesus is stirring things up a little bit in the culture. People are getting value that didn't used to get value. People are getting opportunity when they, when they didn't used to have opportunity. And so there's this possibility that some are being accused of wrongdoing. So he knows that's going on. So they're, they're getting accused. They're getting possibly rejected, ostracized, maybe even suffering a little bit, though they're not dying yet for their faith. So he wants to speak to them in a way that would encourage them and in a way that they would get, in a way that they would understand, a way that would resonate with their narrative. Now, why Noah? Well, in this particular part of the world, they were very familiar with Noah. In fact, they were, apart from the Bible, apart from Jesus, apart from any teaching about God, they knew Noah. In fact, this particular part of the world had four archaic accounts of a great flood in this region. And one of their names, because of this understanding of an ark that rescued people from the flood, one of the names of one of their towns was Kibatas, uh, which is the Greek word for ark. And it, actually, the whole town name was Apamea Kibatos. And so they actually named a town after the ark that rescued the people through the flood. Uh, in fact, Noah was a prominently known biblical figure in Asia Minor, um, even though their, their stories didn't all line up with the biblical one. But he was so well known that they actually had coins minted with he and his wife on one side and the Caesar on the other. Pretty remarkable. So they're walking around spending money with Noah on it everywhere they go. And they knew Noah, and you can look this up in Second Peter 
if you'd like to, 2 Peter 2, 5, they knew Noah to be a preacher of righteousness calling people to repent. So they knew all of that story. So Peter, being a very good missionary, is speaking into their narrative in light of a story they really know that he knows is a powerful picture of God's rescue and, and, and salvation. That's what he's doing. So we've got to keep that in mind. What is, what is he trying to do? He's trying to call them to hope in the midst of suffering. You might remember Noah took a long time to build the ark. And while he's doing it, he's being ridiculed, he's being mocked on, and he's continuing to tell the people there is, there is judgment coming. I'm warning you. Turn to God. Wake up. I'm, I'm not building an ark because I'm bored. I'm building an ark because it's the only way we're going to get saved. And nobody but his family believes. It says eight in all entered the ark. Now, you can imagine what that's like to be a preacher of righteousness, calling people to turn to God, telling them there's a way to be saved, and the only people who believe are your family. You can see why Peter might be sharing this story to a group of people who are being ostracized, rejected, and they're continuing to warn people, no, God is serious. There is a day of judgment coming. You can turn right now from your sins and turn to Jesus who died for your sins. There is a way out of the flood of God's wrath. Now, why am I convinced that the Spirit of Christ was, when it says he went to them, went to, went to them to preach to, I'm sorry, what, what, why am I convinced that preaching to the spirits in prison refers to speaking in the day of, of, Mo, uh, of Noah. I want to just back up in the text. It says, he was put to death in the flesh, and that could be translated in the realm of the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit, in which or by which, by whom, the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I'm convinced that when he's talking about the spirits in prison, it actually could be translated the spirits who are now in prison, a present state reality, that he's speaking to the people who Noah was preaching to, who rejected the warning. Because it says in verse 20, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I'm convinced it's referring to the persons who didn't listen because there were only eight who did. And that the ones who are now in prison are the ones who rejected in prison being a place apart from God, ultimately they'll spend eternity in hell, the Bible teaches us. I'm convinced that what Peter's saying here is that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah to the people, warning them. And you go, well, where do you come with that? Well, let's back up 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Because remember, we, we want to do it in light of the situation, in light of the culture, in light of the biblical narrative, and in light of what he's already said. So what has he already said in verse 10? Concerning this salvation, the prophets, this is 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. This is referring to the Old Testament prophets prior to Jesus' coming. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glor glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by what? The Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. What is Peter saying? 
that when the gospel is being proclaimed, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that is speaking through his people. Ephesians 2.7, one other verse I want to look at. It says, he, referring to Jesus Christ, he came and preached peace, this is to the church in Ephesus, peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now it's important to know, Jesus never went to Ephesus. He was never there in bodily form. He spent the majority of his ministry not very far from Jerusalem. Never went all the way to Ephesus. That's Paul who went to Ephesus and preached the gospel to the Ephesians. So what is Paul saying? He, Christ, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. How did Jesus do it? Was Jesus actually physically in Ephesus? No. Yes. Got it? Follow what I'm saying? No. Yes. He was there through his people. Paul to the Ephesian church says in verse chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, Christ is the head of his church, which is his body, in which he fills all in all. And, Peter, and Paul is saying in chapter 2, he was preaching through his people by his spirit. Now you go, well, what's the big deal? Here's, here's the big deal. Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, I should say Christ, not Jesus, because Jesus is the, the incarnate Christ, the, the God-made flesh. So Christ, pre-incarnate, the Son of God, before he took on flesh, preached to the people in Noah's day by his Spirit through Noah. And he proclaimed through the prophets by his Spirit of his coming, that he would come to suffer for sin. And the Spirit of God that enabled Jesus, the Christ to preach through Noah and through the prophets is what was on Jesus and in Jesus and filling Jesus to preach when he had his earthly ministry. That same spirit, Jesus said, would fill his church so that they would preach with the same power and presence from which Jesus preached with. That's, that's the same spirit. So what is Peter saying? If the spirit of Christ was preaching to Noah and they rejected, and the spirit of Christ is proclaiming through the prophets, telling of his coming and his suffering eventually, and they were rejected, and Jesus had the Spirit on him when he preached, and everybody, almost, almost everybody rejected him, then don't be surprised when you have the Spirit of Christ in you and you're preaching that people don't all believe it. In fact, let me just say it this way. For some of us, we might go, the, the evidence of the Spirit of God at work in my life is how people respond. Wrong. The evidence of the Spirit of God in Jeff's life has nothing to do with any of you living, uh, believing what I'm about to say. It has everything to do with me being able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with power, even to deaf ears, and to keep doing it, and to not give up, and to persevere like Noah, because the Spirit of Christ would not let him shut his mouth. That's how the Spirit works. He testifies to us. John 14, 15, and 16, if you want to read it later, a lot about the Spirit of God, but one of the things that we're told he does is he witnesses to us so that we can witness to others. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters who are here, who know God, who have the Spirit of God, I want to encourage you. You have the same Spirit that preached through Noah's lips. You have the same Spirit that preached through Peter's lips on Pentecost. You have the same Spirit that preached through Jesus' lips from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
hope that gives you great encouragement. Like, wow, God has not left you alone. Jesus suffered in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But not only to bring you to God, but to bring God to you. To fill you with the Spirit of God so that you might be the mouthpiece of God to the world. Not only has he suffered for our sins, but he's speaking through your lives by his Spirit wherever you go. This is really good news for me. Because I'll be honest, there are days, if I'm not careful, when I get done preaching, I'll go home and I'll ask myself, how well did I do? And if I didn't get a lot of response or I didn't sense there was engagement, if I'm not careful, I'll start to believe that I did poorly or did well based upon the response of the people. But God is not concerned whether I can make anybody change. In fact, he knows that that's not the case. I can't. I'm completely powerless to have your hearts changed this morning apart from the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not powerless to proclaim the gospel, but I am powerless to make sure you believe the gospel. And it's my hope today that you would. Yeah. And I, but I want you to hear this. I'm not the only one in the room with the Spirit. I'm not the only preacher here. We are all, if we are in Christ, if he suffered for our sins, if the the righteous was exchanged for the unrighteous, if his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of my sins and your sins, and you believe that, the Bible says you've been cleansed of your sin and become a holy temple in which God dwells, and you have the same spirit through which Peter proclaimed the gospel, Noah proclaimed the good news, and Jesus proclaimed it. And if you've got that, then you, you can do the very same things that I'm doing here in your life, in your neighborhood, in your community. And I want to just encourage you, do not worry about whether or not people respond. That's not up to you. Pray. Say, God, would you open the eyes of their heart? If you're here this morning and you've not yet responded to the good news of Jesus Christ, it is not on me to do that. It's up to God to change your heart, to open your eyes, to open your ears, to hear the message that God loves you, that God died for you, that Jesus suffered in your place so you don't have to, that the sin that you committed, your rejection of God, was put on Jesus Christ at the cross, and he paid for it once for all for you. That's for you. Now, I can keep saying it, and you can keep walking away and not believing it. And I, all I can do is, in the power of the Spirit, keep preaching the good news of the gospel. And here's the reality. Then I not, not only do I need to know that the Spirit of God is speaking through me and that He loves me and accepts me regardless of whether or not it seems to come across or it lands on open hearts, I, I, that's, not what, that's not what justifies me at the end of the day. It's not what justifies you at the end of the day. Someone's reception of the message does not make you received by God. Someone's acceptance of the message doesn't make you acceptable by God. What makes you acceptable is Jesus Christ. Oh, that's it. Some of you might go like, I'm scared to death to even talk about him. You know what? That doesn't make you rejected by God. Look at Moses. He needed Aaron. He needed some help. Some of you might go, 
man, every time I do, I just fumble on my words. That's okay. That is not what makes you acceptable before God. It is Jesus. And that's what he goes on next. He wants us to understand that even Noah, all he did was follow the instructions of building a boat, and he had nothing to do with his salvation at the end of the day. It was God who designed the ark. It was God who saved him from the flood. It was God who did all the work. So listen to what he says, verse 23. Not only has Jesus suffered for our sins, and he speaks through our lives, but he saves us through the flood. He saves us through the flood of our own sin, saves us through the flood of our own suffering. He saves us through the flood of even the spiritual attack that's coming against us right now. And this is what he says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, referring to Noah and the flood and being saved safely through water. It says they were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, I want to be clear. What he is not saying is getting in the water is what saves you. It's not the removal of dirt, getting into the water and coming out of the water that saves you. It's, it's what baptism speaks to. And listen to what he says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, in our baptism, we're saying, I needed someone else to change me. I needed someone else to, to forgive me. I needed someone else to come in and make me new. I needed to die to the Jeff that's trying in his own strength to become righteous, and I needed to die and be put into the ground, as it were, with Jesus in his burial and be raised again into new life with his life as my life. That's, that's what we're saying. We're appealing to God, saying, I can't do it. I can't cleanse myself from my sin. I'm appealing to you. My baptism is a picture of my appeal for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, I, I want to make sure it's clear. Our hope is not in how well we suffer. Our hope is not in how well we proclaim the gospel. Our hope is not in how well people respond to the message. Our hope is not in, in whether or not we keep doing enough good. Our hope is in the one who saves us and gives us a good conscience. And even our act of going under the water is not what saves us because it's not by our works. It's by his. It's an appeal to God. It's saying, God, you have to save. So our baptism is a reminder of the flood and the ark. They were brought safely through water. Our baptism corresponds to this because what's going on? Noah and his family entered into the ark that God told him to build in a particular way. He gave him the plans. He oversaw the entire building project. He was the general contractor, if you want to use that language. And and he knew what it would take to be able to handle the wrath of God's flood being poured out on the earth for all the wickedness. In fact, if you don't know the story, go back in Genesis and you'll, you'll find, starting five, in fact, I would say five, and then start, keep reading. At one point, God says uh, that the, the thoughts of the hearts of man, the, the thought of the heart, the intention of the heart of every single human was continually evil all the time. That's a bad place. In fact, if you don't miss it, you might think God was terribly cruel in the flood, but the reality is he knew that if he didn't stop the wickedness of humanity, they would kill themselves off. There would be no humanity left. And so in his grace, he saved humanity instead of destroying them all through a family so that humanity could, could get another start. And he designed the means by which they would be saved, which would be the ark. And he, he called... Noah to, to go into the ark, to hide out in it. In fact, what's amazing is they can't do anything other than sit in there. 
You ever thought of what it was like to be in the ark for all that time? Just like, you're just going, okay, I don't know, we're just in the boat. There's no oars, there's no sail, there's, no, there's nothing you can do. You just get in it. Here's the question I want to ask you. What are you climbing into to deal with your guilty conscience? What are you putting your life into that you think will save you? What are you putting your life into that you think will somehow rescue you from the, the decisions you've made in the past, from the failures you've accomplished, from the things that have been done against you, maybe even your sense of inadequacy? What are you pouring your life into? Is it the ark of the new covenant, Jesus Christ? See, what Peter wants us to understand is just as Noah and his family crawled into the ark where the door was closed behind them and God seals it up and they're saved through the wrath of the flood, God's wrath being poured out against all the sin of the, of the world, he wants us to climb into Christ. He wants us to find our life in Christ, the true and better ark of God. Like Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What he's saying is, when you come to faith in Christ, your old life is being buried. It's being put to death. And you're identified now with Christ as your ark, the one who saves you from the wrath of God. Consider his death. Just as God poured out his wrath against sin through the flood, the cross was a display of what God thinks of our sin. In fact, if there's any of you here that you've been hurt deeply by the sin of another, and you go, does God know? Does God understand how wretched sin is? Look to the cross. Does he care? Yes, look to the cross. He cares enough to send his only son who willingly took on flesh to, to live a perfectly submitted life to God on our behalf so he might be a, a perfect human substitute for our sin. That one who obeyed in every way might go and be a substitute for us who have not obeyed. And when he went to the cross, God showed us how much he, he loves us and how much he hates sin. Why would he suffer and die such a horrific death if sin was no big deal to God? In fact, a lot of times I hear people go like, well, if God's love, why doesn't he just overlook sin? Because that would be unloving. Because at the heart of sin, it's rebellion against the giver of life. And rebellion against the giver of life is rebellion against life itself. And therefore, all sin robs people of life. And God wants you to know, he wants you to live abundantly the greatest life there is. And the only way to do it is to be not only forgiven of sin, but set free of its power so you can live a life that looks like what God's like. That's what he's doing at the cross. So just as you might look at the flood and go, man, God really cares about wickedness and he really loves humanity so much that he'll save them through the flood, you should look at the cross and go, he really hates sin and he really loves you. And he wants to save you through the cross. And it goes further because not only are you forgiven, but just as God cleansed the earth from sin, so he's also cleansed us from sin that we might have a clear, clear and clean conscience. Some of you maybe this morning are coming in going, oh, I've got so much stuff I regret. Come to Jesus. Receive his grace. Know that he died for every sin you've ever committed. You can be cleansed from a, a guilty conscience today. And then consider his resurrection. Not only should we place ourselves in Christ because he died in our place to overcome sin for us, but he rose again. And just as Christ was raised in a new life, 
we are also raised in Christ into newness of life. Think about it, how the ark, God uniquely designed the ark to be able to rise up above the flood waters that were set to destroy all the sin on the earth. The, the ark was the only thing that could survive. And if you were in the ark, you survived with it. God has done the same thing in Christ. There's only one who can survive the wrath of God being poured out for sin, and that's Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross for our sin, he absorbed and satisfied all the wrath that God has against any sin you've ever committed, and he rose again on the third day as a vindication of God's, God's requirement being fully met in Jesus. And just as the ark rose up above the waters, when we're in Christ, we rise up above our sin. We're no longer defined by it. We're no longer controlled by it. We're no longer limited by the weakness of our sinful flesh. We're set free by the power of the Spirit to live a new life. This is the gospel. Not only has he died for you, but he rose for you. And if you are in Christ, like Noah's family was in the ark, then you get what Christ did, and you get who Christ is, and you get to live the, Christ that, the life that Christ can live through you. This is what you get. Peter wants them to understand. You, do you understand what God did in Noah's day? It's even better. It's, it's absolutely the better ark. He is the better ark. Jesus is the better ark that overcomes the sin of the world, that rises above its floods. And what I love about it is Peter ends. This is what he says. He says, He's gone into the heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, he's saying, not only has he died for your sin and raised you to new life, but he's lifted you up in the highest place so that there is not a power on this earth that can have any authority over you anymore. If you are in Christ, he is above every name. He's above every angelic being. He's above every demon. There is no spiritual attack that is bigger or more powerful than the power of Jesus and his resurrection and his present ascension to the right hand of God the Father for you. And Jesus is seated up, on the, up, up in the highest place, and I love this picture. What, no, what, what Peter wants us to get is, just as the ark rose above the waters and it rested up on the mountain, we are rested on the mountain of God's grace. We have nothing to fear. We are in the highest place. Right now you might feel like, oh, I'm just crushed by sin. I'm crushed by my brokenness. I'm, I'm reminded of what I've done wrong. I want to encourage you. In Christ, you are lifted above all of that. Don't let it define you. Don't let it control you. Don't let it keep you down. You, if you are in Christ, are seated above every rule and authority and power. This is good news. Maybe you're here today, you never entered into the, the ark of God's love in Christ Jesus. I want to call you. I want to call you to Jesus. I want to call you to stop putting your life into something that will not ever rescue you, will not ever save you, will not ever redefine you, will not set you free. If you're looking to your job or your relationships or your parenting or your, your, your looks or whatever it may be that you think is going to rise you up above everyone else, I want to tell you there is only one who's above everyone else and that's Jesus. Put your life in Jesus today and he will lift you up. The psalmist says he's the lifter of our heads. He's also the lifter of your whole life. He takes you from the miry pit of your own sin and he lifts you up out of it and he sets you on a rock. And that rock is himself. I said at the beginning that we're going to have baptisms on August 23rd. There's some of you who have responded in faith in Jesus and never ever expressed 
what I just talked about through your baptism. If you haven't done that, Jesus commands that we call people to follow him and make disciples of him by being baptized into him. And your baptism, those of you who have been baptized, I just want to remind you, your baptism is the reminder that the old you died with Christ, the new you rose with Christ, and you are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms because of his power and might. So if you haven't celebrated your baptism in a while, just like pause and go, yes, that's what my baptism was saying out loud, that it is an appeal to God for my salvation, and I believe he saved me. Just like Noah was saved through the flood. Those of you who experienced that, when you go to the table today, we just say, Jesus, thank you again that my baptism wasn't just cleansing me from physical dirt, but literally that I was baptized into Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Those of you who have never, ever come to Jesus, I just would beg of you. I can't control what happens. I would beg of you to listen to the Spirit of God speaking through me today. Because he is. He is. He is. And you need to come to him. And you need to enter into Jesus as the only one who's the hope, saving you from your sins, lifting you above the mire and muck of your sin and suffering and a broken world. You need to be saved. Come to Jesus today. Let me pray for all of us. Father, I'm thankful that you called Peter's mind to speak to a culture that would get this story. Many of us have heard this story many times that we haven't, we've never connected the dots and how it points to you, Jesus. Jesus, you're the far better ark. I pray that you would remind us that if we are in you, we are hidden from the, from the wrath of God. We are hidden from the, the suffering and brokenness of this world. We can be protected in you. We can be lifted up above it. We don't have to be defined by it. We don't have to be held down by it. We don't have to be uh, limited by what this world has to offer. We have the one who went above, who is lifted high, who is alive. And Father, for anyone who has never entered into the ark of your great love in Jesus Christ, I pray today that they would come into the ark of your salvation, that you would save them from the flood today. In Jesus' name, amen.